Well, Master, finding your place, let me just pray for us once more. Nothing compares to the promise that I have in you, Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we have so many reasons to praise you this morning. So many reasons to adore you, to thank you, and to be looking to you for help. Lord God, I pray you would help me now as I open your word and preach. May I be forgotten, as it were, and may you be remembered. In Jesus' name, Amen. Brilliant. Well, who here likes going to gigs? Who's into gigs? Who's into concerts and shows? Do people want to raise their hands? Got a little few here? Or are you too embarrassed? You know, is this the kind of church where you're allowed to go to gigs? I don't know. <laughs> Who here likes going to gigs? Good. Okay, so when I was growing up, I went to quite a lot of gigs and concerts. In fact, I was playing in quite a lot uh, during the, you know, back in the day when I was a musician and things like that. And I can tell you a story of one time I went to a comedy, di- a comedy gig. This was during my time at university. Uh, many, many, cent- not centuries, many years ago. And um, it, was, it was quite interesting. It was at the Apollo in London. It was brilliant. I was with my friends and I was laughing away at the comedian. It was very fantastic. But it got to a point, I was laughing away, but it got to a point where things got very uncomfortable. The comedian, they started moving their topic onto Christianity. And you know, you know he began to rip into Jesus. And he was tearing Christ apart uh, with joke after joke after joke. And the worst thing was being there, knowing that more jokes were coming. Jesus didn't answer back. I mean, it would have been absolutely wonderful, wouldn't it? You know, after the first joke in a string of about ten, you know, if you know, there was the kind of big, booming, loud voice, you know, the kind of voice we've seen in Mark's Gospel already during Jesus' baptism or during his transfiguration and the Apollo in London, it all shook, a bit like an earthquake. But Jesus didn't answer back. The comedian just kept on telling the gags and everyone around me kept applauding and the laughing got louder and louder and louder. How do you feel as a follower of Jesus in that moment when it doesn't look like that he is the king? You don't need to be at a comedy night to experience that kind of wounding in the Christian life. Maybe you know you switch on the TV or you're tuning into your favourite podcast app and Stephen Fry's there, he's talking away, he's very clever, very sophisticated. And, you know, he's saying how silly it is to be a believer in Jesus, how silly it is to be a Christian, and Jesus doesn't answer back. Instead, what you get is the interviewer saying things like, hmm, yeah, hmm, very good, yes, yes. And you're sure that the real warmth, there's also behind the camera, with all the crew folks, you know, from those who are doing the filming and all the editing, all the onlookers, they're nodding away in approval and so on. Or maybe it's a friend who says something, you know, or you overhear one of your friends talking to another mate and they're telling jokes and they are making and poking fun of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't answer back. How do you feel as a believer in that situation? These sorts of things 
can easily shake us in the Christian life, can't they? So often it doesn't look like that Jesus is the king. And so often it does look like instead that the opposition, well, they are powerful, they're influential, and they're getting away with things. And what they're saying can feel so clever and persuasive and sophisticated. It shakes us. It makes us wonder if Jesus really is the king. And so, my friends, it is wonderful that we have Mark chapter 12. Because in Mark chapter 12, Jesus answers back big time to the opposition that surrounds him. We've been going through a series in Mark's Gospel on Sunday mornings. Let me just say a couple of things to get our bearings once more as we head into these conversations that Jesus has with these people. Firstly, opposition to Jesus has been growing from the Jewish leaders. It's been growing and growing and becoming more and more hostile. But secondly also, Jesus has been pronouncing judgment on unbelieving Israel. Opposition to Jesus has been growing and Jesus has been promising that judgment is coming. And we can see that, my friends, for example, in chapter 11, verse 18, if you just glance back in your Bibles. Mark 11, verse 18, it says, Where the chief priests and the scribes, the teachers of the law, when they hear what Jesus is saying, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. Opposition is growing. Then, that's just one of many of the examples of the attitudes that these people are having towards Jesus. And Jesus also pronounced judgment on them. And he's told the parable, if you were here last week, Joseph took us through that parable in the start of Mark chapter 12, just before today's passage, about this horrific way how God's own people have treated him and how they've even killed God's own son. But the parable ends, if you remember, with judgment for those who reject Jesus. Have a look at chapter 12, verse 9. Chapter 12, verse 9. What will the owner, that is God, of the vineyard do? He'll come and destroy the tenants, those who have rejected his son, and he will give the vineyard to others. And then there's a twist in the tale, isn't there, about triumph for the one who was rejected. Chapter 12, verse 10, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's the context of these conversations that we're having this morning. Opposition to Jesus keeps growing and there's also warnings of judgment from Jesus that are coming. And in the midst of this drama, the Jewish leaders are the ones who are opposing Jesus, you know, what they do is they send out various, you know, different hit parades or mobs, if you like, different people groups to try and bring Jesus down. And we see the first two hit parades in today's passage, and we want to see what can we learn from Jesus' interaction with them. Well, what we learn, point one, is that Jesus exposes his enemies' rebellion. Jesus exposes his enemies' rebellion. The Pharisees and the Herodians from the first hit parade, you know, and they come to Jesus with a bit of a clever conundrum. 
You know, maybe they've been working it up all night. They've been spending hours upon hours in the previous evening thinking it up and trying to home it in and sharpening it. They think they can outsmart Jesus. They think they can trap him. Do you see how Mark tells this? He shows their heart in verse 13. Verse 13, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. And then look at them, just look at how they mask the question. Look at the mask that they put on. How they start, you know, buttering up Jesus. Verse 14, they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right then to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Can you see what's going on there? They are clearly buttering up Jesus. They try and mask the question, don't they? You know, Jesus, we really want to know. We're genuinely wanting to know the answer. We're desperate to know the answer to this question. Now, the thing is, that question that they ask, it's a conundrum because it means Jesus is going to have to choose a side. And the two sides there are actually represented by the two groups. You have, on the one hand, the Pharisees who hated the idea of Roman rule and they resentfully paid the taxes. But then on the other hand, you have the Herodians. They were essentially supportive in principle with Roman taxes. They wanted to be pally with the Roman emperor because they thought if we could pay taxes and just do what we're supposed to do, then we can get favours from them. Opposite ends of the religious spectrum happy to unite together to try and kill Jesus. And their partnership, well, it creates this dilemma for Jesus. Which way are you going to go on to Jesus? You know, which side will you choose? Will you side with Rome and say, pay taxes, and therefore um, the religious folks, you know, they'll get angry? Or will you side with the religious leaders and say, no, don't get you know, pay taxes to Caesar and therefore make the Romans really angry. Can you see the conundrum? Can you see what they're trying to do? They're trying to force Jesus to pick one side to give the other side a reason to arrest and kill him. They don't really mind what Jesus really thinks about taxes, you know. They just want to get him on one side or the other so that they can then build up opposition from the side he's not on, and more people can then hate him. Opposition against Jesus, clever conundrums to try and trick him and bring him down and raise up the enemies. But Jesus answers back, doesn't he? And it's an amazing answer that Jesus gives. He is not tricked in the slightest, is he? He actually straightforwardly exposes the Pharisees and the Herodians' hypocrisy. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked, bring me a denarius, that's the currency that they were using in first century Judaism, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And then Jesus gives his answer. Verse 16, have a look. They brought the coin. 
And he asked them, whose image is on this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. I wonder what you make of that answer. Can I say, you know, Jesus, he isn't here, you know, being some kind of slippery politician. You know, we've seen them, haven't we, you know, on the breakfast shows, the Today programme, or those programmes, you know, where Piers Morgan is grilling them. You know, he asks, you know, the tough question, and they kind of reply with something very interesting, but it doesn't really answer the question that he was wanting at all, does they? And so Piers Morgan, what he does, he just repeats the question exactly word for word, which is saying everything to the viewer and to the politician. And then they just reply again in exactly the same way. And this maybe happens two, three, four, five times before Piers Morgan gets frustrated and goes somewhere else. That's not what Jesus is doing here. That's not what's happening. He does indeed answer their question about paying taxes. But at the same time of answering the question, he also throws back a knockout punch to them, which exposes their rebellion against God. Have a look carefully, verse 17. Give back, in verse 17, it doesn't simply mean pay, as in pay things to Caesar, but also pay things to God. No, it means give back, in the sense, give back to somebody what is rightfully theirs in the first place. So Jesus, you know, he looks down at this coin, doesn't he? And he's given and he says, look, Caesar's image is on this coin. So it belongs to him. Give it back to him. He's saying, pay your taxes. Honour the human institutions that God has set in place, whether you like them or not. That's a note that rings throughout the rest of the New Testament. You can read much more about that in Romans chapter 13. But then here's the real punch. He doesn't choose a side, does he? Jesus then says, and give back to God the things that are God. Give back to God what he is due. And just think about everything Mark has already told us about unrepentant Israel. Think about this. We saw two weeks ago, Jesus, you know, he's going into the temple, isn't he? He's declaring that robbery was taking place. A robber does exactly the opposite of giving back to a person what's rightfully theirs. A robber steals what isn't theirs and keeps it from that person. And you remember from last week's passage, Jesus told a parable where God is like the owner of a vineyard wanting his fruit back. And unbelieving Israel, again and again and again, they are not giving back to God what is rightfully his. In fact, they kill those who arrive on God's behalf to collect his fruits. So by the time the Pharisees and the Herodians come and ask this question about payment, Jesus has already read out their criminal record. And it includes robbing God. And off the parable from last week, you can also add on serial murder. Even killing God's beloved son. Unrepentant Israel will not listen to God or obey the living God. They will not give him the worship that he is due. And can I say, we see that most of all in the fact that they will not acknowledge his son, 
who has arrived in history as promised to save his people. So yes, honour Caesar, give to Caesar what is his, but you're always known your allegiance, your devotion goes to God. And that's an answer that exposes these Jewish leaders. It's an answer that convicts us all, isn't it? We live in God's world without giving God the praise and devotion that he is due, or without acknowledging his son as he, you know, as the king who is sent to save us. Aren't we all guilty of that? We live in God's world. We were made by him, but we don't worship him. We're not fully devoted to him 24-7. That's how Jesus ends his answer back to the first hit parade. It's amazing, isn't it? These guys, you know, they have come to try and expose Jesus, you know, push him onto one side or to the other so they can judge him and arrest him and kill him. But actually, Jesus exposes them. He's not harmed at all, is he? They are judged. That's the first thing we learn when Jesus answers back. He exposes his enemies' rebellion. But there's another hit parade that comes along to question Jesus. And that's point two. Jesus exposes his enemy's ignorance. This is in verses 18 to 27. Jesus exposes his enemy's ignorance. Have you ever asked the question where really you didn't really want to know the answer at all? Have you ever done that? I think kids are experts at doing this. They do it so well when they realise they can ask the very short one-word question, why, at the end of every single thing someone says. You need to do your teeth. Why? Because we need to get on and go to nursery. Why? Because that is where you're going. This is... You know, Wednesday and Thursday, this is when you go to nursery. And if you don't brush your teeth, then you'll have smelly breath. Why? It goes on and on and on and on. They don't want to know the answer. They're just trying to expose something in the person they're asking the question to. They're trying to, as it were, show how impatient you are and how easily annoyed you get. And sometimes it works very well. It's exactly the same thing that's happening with the Sadducees in these verses when they ask Jesus their question. They don't really want to know the answer to the question. They just want to expose something about the Lord Jesus. They want to bring him down. So, like the Pharisees and the Herodians, these Sadducees, they come up with a conundrum. This time it's a resurrection riddle based on some... Uh, laws back about marriage back in the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy. Again, just have a look at how Mark tells the story of this encounter. Have a look. He shows, for example, straight away the hypocrisy in, their, in, what, in what they're saying, you know, in their hearts. Verse 18, then the Sadducees came to Jesus who say there is no resurrection. <laughs> so we already know before they ask a resurrection riddle that they don't actually believe in the resurrection. And then what they do is they ask the riddle to Jesus, verse 19. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for, uh, Moses, he wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, 
but had no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but also died, leaving no child. It was the same for the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. Now have a look carefully at verse 23. At the resurrection, which we already know they don't really believe in, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Totally ridiculous. They're not interested in the answer at all. They're like the child asking, why, why, why? They're just trying to expose something in Jesus. They want to humiliate Jesus and bring him down and show that the resurrection is a silly idea. More opposition against Jesus Ridiculous riddles to try and trick him and bring him down and raise enemies up. But again, just like with the Pharisees and just like with the Herodians, so again with the Sadducees, Jesus answers back. And again, if the plan is to knock Jesus down a peg or two, well, just look at how King Jesus answers it. It's wonderful. Again, he's not tricked at all, but rather the opposition is brought down to size. Verse 24, Jesus replied, Are you not in error? Because you do not know the scriptures, which they supposedly knew so well, and they were so well read in the first place, nor the power of God. And then verse 25, Jesus says something quite shocking, doesn't he? Verse 25, there's going to be no human marriages anyway when people are raised from the dead. You know, maybe that is a bit of a shock to us. There is, of course, the Bible says, of course, you know, a marriage in the new creation. A marriage that we all should be looking forward to for trusting in the Lord Jesus. No matter if we're married now, no matter if we're single now, no matter if we're widowed now or divorced now. There is a marriage, the Bible says, that all Christians can look forward to, no matter our earthly circumstances today. That is the marriage between God and his people. That's actually what all human marriage on earth is meant to point to. And of course, once we have that reality in all its fullness, well, we don't need to signpost it anymore, do we? Now, I am fully aware that that may raise up quite a few questions for some of you in terms of your circumstances to do with uh, relationships, with singleness, with marriages, and so on. If you want to talk more to us, come and speak to me at the end over refreshments. I can recommend you some things to read and to listen to as well if that would be helpful. Come and find me, we can chat more. But the truth that rings really loud in these verses that I want us all to see is that the answer that Jesus gives in this context is that Jesus proves that the resurrection is real in the first place. In verse 24, Jesus talks about the power of God, namely the power of God to raise. Verse 25, Jesus begins by saying, when the dead rise, he's already assuming the resurrection to be true, as he talks about no human marriages in the new creation. But then, verse 26, Jesus says, Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses 
the book of Moses, by the way, that they're trying to quote from to trick Jesus. Jesus actually takes them back to their source material. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. You are quite wrong. Jesus starts by saying you are wrong. He ends by saying, you are wrong. Jesus says again and again, the resurrection is real. He's going back to the place, the Bible, you know, the Sadducees, they should have known better, but they would have been familiar with the first five books of the Old Testament. And he shows there that the resurrection is real. He says, look, can't you see that when God turns up and speaks, he does so declaring that he is the God of all these dead descendants whom he made promises to. He's a faithful God who makes promises to these dead descendants who didn't get the promises then and he's kept saying again and again, I am the God of these descendants. Not that I was the God of these descendants, but I am the God of these descendants. And he is faithful. These descendants will see these promises fulfilled even though they have died. Again, why is this such a big deal, you may ask? How does this act, you know, as a knockout blow, as it were, to those who are trying to destroy Jesus? Well, again, think about it. Think about the parable Jesus told last week and that twist at the very end. Chapter 12, verse 10. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected, that's Jesus, Jesus that builders rejected, has become the cornerstone. So how can a rejected stone become the cornerstone, become the most important, the most prominent stone in the whole building. If you've killed that stone, like, how can this happen? You know, that's what the tenants of this parable did. They killed the stone. They killed the sun. Well, that twist can only happen if the stone comes back from the dead. The resurrection from the dead is Jesus' big answer back to all opposition. Jesus has said, remember, three times in Mark's Gospel that the Son of Man, that is Jesus, he is going to be arrested, he's going to be killed, and he will rise three days later. And here he is proving to the very people who are trying to kill him and who don't believe that there is a resurrection, that God has always been in the business of resurrection. He's always said that, and Jesus says it again in verse 27. He's not the God, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Which means Jesus' answer back here, it doesn't just tell the opposition that they're wrong about a theological fact. No, it's telling them to watch out. They can do their worst. They can even kill the son, just, just like the tenants did. They can kill Jesus, but still, Jesus will win. That's the second thing that we learn when Jesus answers back to opposition. He exposes his enemy's ignorance because the resurrection is real. But so what? You know, as we step back and look at both these episodes, these conversations, what do we actually learn from these failed hit parades? Well, here's our last point for this morning. We learn that we need to do a reality check on the opposition to Jesus. We need to do a reality check 
on opposition to Jesus. Can I suggest that I think Mark wants us all to see that opposition to Jesus, first of all, back in the first century, but I guess you know, rippling out into today as well, for what it really is. He wants us to see that opposition will fall and that Jesus rules. I mean, it's easy, isn't it, to be persuaded that opposition to Jesus is clever. I imagine that's what the first Christians may have thought so when they read these documents for the very first time. They saw the high and mighty Pharisees back in the day, the experts, the Sadducees, all opposing Jesus. Opposition looks clever and it looks like there's no consequence. But, as we've seen from this passage... To continue opposing King Jesus, once we've seen the evidence of who he is, and once we've heard him speak, and these religious leaders, you know, they have again and again, it actually says more about what is wrong with us. It says more in terms of not what is wrong with Jesus, but what is wrong in our own hearts. That's the big irony here, isn't it? You know, these guys, they are coming to Jesus, they're trying to expose him, but they are the ones who get exposed as Jesus answers back. They're coming to judge Jesus, but they are the ones being judged, having gone away. You know, I was thinking it's a good exercise to imagine, you know, these episodes a little bit like a cartoon. Uh, excitement and anticipation, you know, you know, running through the veins of these religious groups as they do their best and they you know, move towards Jesus and they try to trick him. You know, maybe there's conversations going on between these factions and these groups. You know, we've got, you know, we've got this wonderful conundrum about taxes. We're going we're gonna to absolutely trap him. He's going to have to choose a side. It's going to be great. He's going to be caught single-handed. Oh, you think you've got a good conundrum. Well, listen to us. We've got a resurrection riddle. Oh, he's going to be totally stumbled by that because we use the Bible to back up our riddle, you know. Can you imagine what's going on with all of this? And can you imagine then, Jesus in the temple, and they're so happy with themselves, they're sort of going like this, we're going to kill Jesus. They're so jolly, and they think they've got him. They think they've got him at last. But in the end, in the end, they kind of leave and go, slowly shuffling their feet, pretty quietly and awkwardly with the tails between their legs. I think Mark is wanting to show us the results of the experts throwing their best at Jesus. And he wants to persuade us that it's really stupid to get on their side. Opposing Jesus, you know, it's a little bit like aiming to gain actual physical ground on a running machine that's permanently switched on. Imagine for a moment, you're an alien. You're an alien, you come from outer space and you've landed, so happen to be, in Hollywell Leisure Centre, all right? And you don't really know how all the equipment works, but you know what running is about. And you hear someone says, here, let's go for a run. And so you get on this treadmill, and you think, you know, you're actually going to move somewhere. You think you're going to move forwards and start heading off somewhere. You run faster and faster and faster, but you go absolutely nowhere. Eventually, you get knackered, and you fall off. My friends, we need to keep that sort of picture in mind when we see opposition to King Jesus. We need to remember how things really went down 
in the temple when Jesus answered back. And we need to remember this. No matter where we stand with Jesus, you know, what about if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian? Maybe you're here and you're investigating the Christian faith for yourself. Well, welcome. We're so glad you are here. And please come to Hope Explored in the middle of April to investigate more about the Christian faith for yourself. And I hope this morning you have been challenged by what Jesus has been showing about opposition against him this morning. I mean, can I say this directly to you? Keep reading Mark's Gospel. Keep looking into it. As I said, come to Hope Explore. Come to Easter services. Keep listening to King Jesus. He promises full forgiveness if you turn to him. Look at your heart. Let him expose you for who you really are. It will feel uncomfortable. But run to him because he promises full and complete forgiveness. And the thing is, if you don't run to him, then I just want to warn you, If you keep on rejecting Jesus, be aware that your rejection of Jesus, it might feel clever and sophisticated, but it won't get you anywhere. It will only end with him rejecting you. Like a runner on the running machine who tries really hard to actually get forward somewhere and goes nowhere and eventually falls off. But what about those of us here this morning who we would call ourselves disciples of the Lord Jesus and we've been following him for quite a long time? How does this passage help us? Well, we need to remember, I think, the lessons that Jesus teaches us. He answers back to opposition. It's so easy, isn't it, to doubt Jesus when everyone around us laughs at him or tuts at his words or forms clever arguments to deny who he is, especially when the experts all jump on board and when friends and family around us will join in and laugh. The opposition is popular and it feels very, very powerful and we can be persuaded by it, can't we? We can be taken in by what they're saying and we can doubt Is Jesus really the king? We can feel discouraged and shaky about saying that I am a Christian. We need to remember, I think, there was a time in history where Jesus did answer back to opposition and where he showed how unbeatable he was and how pathetic and hypocritical and futile his enemies' attempts to beat him were. And of course, we need to remember what Jesus told the Sadducees. We serve a resurrected king who beat death. He didn't stay in the grave. He's ruling and he's reigning. And one day he will come back and everyone will see that he really is the unbeatable king. Jesus rules, opposition will fall.